evening, everybody. How are you, friends? Good to see you all again. And um, we're going to do a, a first tonight. We're going to cover two Bible books in one sitting. And if you would, uh, go with me to the Lord and let's ask him uh, to bless us, uh, if you would. Uh, let's pray. In Jesus' name, uh, we come to you, God, and we thank you so much uh, just to be in our homes on a Wednesday night and enjoying your word, Lord God, and enjoying the beautiful night uh, that we're enjoying. And and uh, even mindful of Darren out there with, uh, it's probably about zero degrees right outside his walls there. And we thank you that he's warm and 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 uh, safe. And God, just uh, have your way with us tonight, we pray. Uh, it's your word, Lord. And so we pray for your will in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Second and third John. Now, these letters are written uh, by John to a church in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And John does not identify himself, and he does not identify his audience in these. And it's likely because of the intense persecutions that are going on to Christians at this time. So just like the book of Revelation, which is written in apocalyptic language, it's written in coded language, it's written in language that only those who understand the, the, how to interpret the codes can understand the letters. Um, that gives you a sense of the amount of persecution uh, that's happening. They're literally writing so that other people that may come across these letters won't know what they're talking about so that uh, the recipients or the authors of these letters do not get arrested or persecuted. So um, John is the last living apostle when he writes these letters. He's the last living apostle. The others all have been executed. So you can imagine how he's living day to day when he's already said goodbye uh, to everybody that walked with him with Jesus for three years. He said goodbye to them all. They all received premature deaths. He's the only one uh, who's still alive when he writes these letters. So therefore, we see him open Second John this way. He simply says, the elder. Obviously not giving his name or anything like that. He just simply says, the elder. And he says, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who love I'm sorry, all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. So in this introduction, he says that he's the elder and that is obviously the authoritative position in a church. So um, he's speaking as their spiritual shepherd and he says it's to the elect lady. Now this is not a human being lady that he's writing to. He's referring to the church as the elect lady. Now, collective bodies, even today, certainly back then, but also today, collective bodies of people were referred to in the, in the feminine. So uh, in the Greek, uh, the, the word for city is the feminine word polis. And that's where we get our word uh, metropolis from. And the metro part of metropolis, where polis means city, the metro part is actually from the Greek word mater, which means mother. So the metropolis is the mother city. It's the main city amongst other suburbs and so forth. And so if the main city is the metropolis, the mother city, then the suburbs are, were called the daughter cities. Okay, so you'll hear the language of to the elect lady and her daughters 
This is referring to a church body as the elect lady and the church plants around there as the uh, daughters of that church plant. So this is to the elect lady and her children, the church plants, whom I love in truth, whom I love in truth. Now, he says, I love them in truth. Now, what, what, what is that signifying? Okay, because we have many loves, but the question is, what do you love or who do you love in truth? And how is that a differentiating marker of love? Well, the idea of truth is that it's unchanging. It never, ever changes. So if you love somebody in truth, that love will never, ever change. Uh, you love them based on reality. So therefore, when reality throws curveballs at us and brings us down and disappoints us, all of those ups and downs of emotions do not affect our love for that person if we love them in truth. If we love them for reasons that are not based on truth, whether it just simply be appearances which change or your emotions of the day which change or the status that loving them gives you or their love gives you that changes, that's not loving somebody in truth. That's loving somebody for mutable reasons rather than immutable reasons. And that's not something that gives anybody security. So he's saying here, that he loves his church in truth or on account of truth, and not only him, but also those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. So he's talking about this truth abides in us and will be with us forever. So he's using the language both of location, this love abides in us, and of time, it'll abide with us forever. So. When you love in truth, you have a love that supersedes time and location. It doesn't matter where you are, the love is the same. It doesn't matter when you are, the love is the same. Now, this is why I think it's significant that when Jesus is introduced to us in Isaiah, when the prophecies of his birth come, the announcement is that he shall be called Emmanuel. Now, you might be thinking, listen, I read my New Testament and now one person calls Jesus Emmanuel. Yes, they do. Every time they call him God and Jesus is in front of him when he calls him God because Emmanuel means God with us. So it's not saying that he'll be named Emmanuel. It won't be his name. It says he'll be called Emmanuel. He'll be called God, but not God up there somewhere. He'll be called God that's right here with us. That's the Emmanuel word. That's because the truth that Jesus is abides in us and will be with us. That's the Emmanuel promise. And that's why marriage is based on these doctrines. Because what happens in marriage? The two shall become one flesh. That's why a husband will leave his home, a woman will leave her mother and father, and the two will become one flesh. It's that same type of unity, that Emmanuel type of unity, uh, that, it, that it's... Um, demonstrating. Now, because of this love that abides with us and will always be with us, that time and location cannot overcome this love, uh, that means this love is going to be strong enough to bring you through any difficulty whatsoever. Because what is John saying in this letter? They're under tremendous persecution so that he can't even identify who he is and he can't identify who his audience is. It's too risky. And with all that they must be going through, that they're hiding their identities, he talks about this loving them in truth. And the idea that he's trying to get across to them, that even if the sword comes against you, 
or, or beatings come against you or, and you're given every worldly reason to deny this faith, understand that there's a greater love that abides in you and will never depart from you that's gonna allow you to actually receive whatever the world brings your way, however difficult it may be, you're gonna be able to um, walk through that faithfully even if it brings you death, why? Because it's very, very important that you, we realize the Bible says that Jesus defeated our last enemy, which is death. So if death is defeated, that means you're not gonna experience anything permanent there. You're gonna go from this life to the next life instantaneously, from this life to the next life in one stream of consciousness, okay? So with all of that accomplished, he's, telling to, he's talking to people who could literally be killed tomorrow. And how does he encourage them? He says this, I love you in truth, and a truth that won't ever leave you, and the truth that won't ever expire. So with that knowledge, you're loved that way, and you'll never not be loved that way, and you'll never be able to go anywhere where you're outside of that love. That should bring to mind to you David's Psalm 139, where in Psalm 139, David, as he gets overwhelmed by the love of God, he says, where can I go from your spirit? He's not trying to find out where to go to be apart from God. He's trying to say, is there anywhere I could go? Because if there's somewhere I could go that's apart from God, I ain't going. So he says, what if I ascend up to heaven? He goes, oh, you're there. He says, what if I descend down to Sheol? He says, you are there. What if I take the wings of the dawn, which is as far east as you can go? He says, you're there. And he says, what if I go to the remotest part of the sea, which was the Western Mediterranean Sea, which they thought was the end of the world. He says, even there you will lead me, your right hand will guide me. Doesn't matter how far north, south, east, or west I go, you're there. There's a love in us that abides in us, in truth, so it's unchanging, it's with us, so, so it'll never, we can't go anywhere where it's not, and it's always there, so, so there's no time limit to it. So. Verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. So John writes, here's what's with you, grace, mercy, and peace. And I would suggest to you that he's giving those three wonderful things to us chronologically. You see, grace, Jesus, the Bible says in John one that Jesus came full of grace and truth. So as he comes to us, just his arrival upon the earth as a man is grace. It's a gift that we've never earned or deserved, that he would actually uh, condescend himself and reduce himself to humanness when he's El Shaddai, the almighty God, and that almighty God is gonna constrain himself to flesh and bones for us. That's tremendous grace that we're given. And that grace has to come first because the next thing it says that we get is mercy. Now, mercy is what we're receiving when he dies on the cross. Why? Because that's your death he's dying. That's what you actually earned and deserve. And you're not getting that bad thing that you earned and deserve. So you're getting mercy. But the mercy couldn't come unless the grace of his arrival came. Now, now that he's arrived, he can die for you. And that's the great mercy that's been given. And without that grace and without that mercy, there is no peace with God that you would ever experience. You have not one solitary moment of peace with God without the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh to dwell among us and him going to the cross and dying for our sins. That grace and that mercy brings us this peace, this tremendous peace of, 
uh, with God. We were once at enmity with God, and while we were still enemies with God, Christ came and Christ died for us. So now we have grace, now we have mercy, and now uh, you and I have peace with God uh, through all of that. Verse four, he says, I rejoiced greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. Now, first of all, he says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in the truth. Now, some of your children, I'm rejoicing over some of your children walking in the truth. Now, the sad thing is, is any church that you visit, you're not gonna find all of the people that call themselves the children of God walking in truth. They're gonna be walking in error. Now, Paul, I'm, I'm sorry, John is writing this and you're going to see just like in 1 John and you'll see just like in 3 John, he's fighting this Gnostic heresy. We've talked about this last week or over the previous weeks. He's fighting the Gnostics. The Gnostics are well known and they are teaching broad spectrums of people in the first century and it directly opposes the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when, when John looks at this church that he calls the elect lady, he's going there because the Gnostics have penetrated this church or this community and those false teachings are being embraced by people. So when he gets there, he's rejoicing that he finds some of them walking in the truth. Now, in our world today, there are many false narratives, many false truths being perpetuated out there. I don't care what realm of category you wanna give me, there's certainly false truths being perpetuated. So when we go to church, especially as large as our church is, what we have to be mindful of is in every one of our services, there are people who really think they're saved and they are not. And how do you know if they're saved or not? Well, Jesus says you'll know by their fruit. But if, even if you don't know them that well, you have to know this. There are false teachings going on out there. And I don't even mind saying this publicly. I've come across, I've, I've come to know that there's a church near enough to us that does not ever give communion. They, don't, they never give communion. And when pressed why, the answer is because I'm afraid they'll eat and drink judgment on themselves. Listen, that is no reason to not give communion. We're taught that you have to fence the table, which means you have to give warning that you have to be a saved, true believer to participate in this communion. But you don't withhold communion. Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you, okay? So if Jesus says there's no life without partaking of the bread and the and the and the, and the, and the uh, the, the vine, then uh, you have to provide that for people. You absolutely have to provide that for people. So, um, I, you know, I have half a heart. I, I, I can't say that I'm totally convicted to, but I think somebody probably more determined than me needs to stand at that front door and just say, listen, Jesus said, if you don't eat his flesh, drink his blood, you have no life in you, and you're not gonna get that here by the pastor's own words. You need to go to another church. And I mean that. And the, and the people that go there that told me this, I told them that, that they need to go. They need to leave that church. So 
false teaching. It's false to say we don't do something because they don't, I don't want them to eat and drink judgment on themselves. I would say for the same reason, they should never do marriages because they don't want, if they don't marry anybody, they don't have to worry about people divorcing for wrong reasons. Or you shouldn't baptize people because what if they don't walk in the truth? Now you baptize them for no reason. So you don't give up on the sacraments of God because of those who will do them uh, irreverently. You warn them and you do the sacraments. So John is fighting this battle. John is fighting this battle and um, he's saying uh, that there's some in the church that we think are parts of the church, but he's going to answer the question of why some of them leave. And he answers this in 1 John. He says, those that were with us, that left from us, they weren't really of us. So he says, just the fact that they walked away showed that they weren't truly of us. Now, St. Augustine addressed this by saying, there's the visible church and the invisible church. We only see the visible church. We only see that which is right in front of our eyes. But God sees the invisible church, that which is authentically his. And we're going to talk about the major mark of authenticity in just a moment. But I want you to know that Jesus said this. Jesus will say about this topic to people, he'll say, why do you call me Lord when you don't do what I say? Okay, so if you're going to call me Lord, it comes with the expectation that you're doing what he says. Lord means master. You don't call somebody your master and then he tells you what to do and you don't do it, okay? So obedience is huge for authenticity. The authentically saved are gonna be obedience to the commands of Christ. Um, we all know the terrible passages in Matthew where people on judgment day say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do A, B, C, D, and E for you? And he says, depart from me, you worker of evil. I never knew you. These are people that call them Lord and say they have something in their performance that justifies them going to heaven. And Jesus basically saying that passage, your works don't save you and your heart was never right. You never did anything for the glory of God, you did it for the glory of yourself, okay? And these are people that call him Lord, that thought he was saved. So therefore, John is saying, I was glad to see some walking in the truth. You know, and that's the, the, that's the power of the Gnostic teachings is that it takes people from the truth. It's a problem with any kind of gospel message that isn't based on scripture. The apostle Paul will say to the Galatian church, if anybody, even an angel from heaven, gives you a gospel different from the gospel of Christ that I'm giving to you, tell him he's anathema, he's damned. Even if it's an angel from heaven, okay? The gospel is so precious and so precise that if anybody changes it, you're to tell that person that they're anathema. Now, what is the ultimate proof of our authenticity? It's our obedience to God. I want to refer you to Romans chapter one for a moment. The importance of obedience to God. In Romans one, verse five, the apostle Paul says this, through him, God, we have received grace. That's from second John that we just got. We have received grace and apostleship. We've received grace and apostleship for him. Now, why did we receive grace and apostleship? For obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Okay, you've received grace for a reason, so that you could be obedient to the faith. You've received apostleship for a reason, that you can be obedient to the faith. Your obedience to the faith 
is your authenticating mark of your true salvation. Now, obedient to what? What does he ask you to do? Well, how about what is the greatest commandment of all? Love God first and foremost, okay? Now, you might have affections in your heart and emotions in your heart for things greater than your affection for God. And what I want to say is, I don't know that that's what that love means. I don't think he's commanding emotions from you. When you're to love God and you're commanded to love God more than anything, it means you're to prioritize him and choose him above all other things, just like you promise in marriage. It's the marriage vow to God that you make to your spouse. You're not promising to have a certain emotion toward your spouse for the rest of your life. You're promising that you will prioritize them and choose them above all others throughout your entire life that you'll act lovingly towards them and choose to be loving towards them. But what he cannot command is the emotion because that's a violation of the freedom and the image you were created in. But he is commanding the decisions. He's commanding the choices towards obedience uh, to, to be loving. And then, of course, the command that goes with it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, not commanding emotions towards your neighbors, commanding decisions and choices that are loving towards your neighbors. So he commands those. Now, we need to be more preoccupied with our obedience to God, all of us. And we should strive for this even though we'll never perfectly achieve it. So you can see the saying I put there, we cannot be sinless, but we must sin less. Okay? We must make choices. Even though we won't reach perfection, we must move in that direction of perfection. Okay. All right. Moving on, uh, verse, uh, let's see. He says, this is commandment I gave to you from the beginning. So what's the newness that he's talking about of this newness of the commandment? The newness of the commandment to love is found in Jesus's example. It's Jesus's example that there's no greater love than to lay down your life for your friend. So now it's a sacrificial love that we're called to, a love that might cost us something, okay? And if we have that type of love, we won't mind it costing us something. All right. Um, all right, verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive a full reward. Now, the Gnostics that he was referring to here, they believe that God created through these emanations. And the further out the emanation goes, the, the more detached from God that emanation was. Now, the our universe, they believe to be a very far off emanation of God. Why? Because the universe is material. It brought matter into existence. And matter, therefore, is evil. And of course, our flesh is a part of that. So our flesh becomes evil. So they would actually indulge their flesh in sinful pleasures because they believed that the flesh had nothing to do with God. It was only the spirit. So therefore, since the flesh will rot and die one day, that it was not at all eternal, so you didn't have to care for it. So you could do whatever you wanted. You only had to mind what's eternal, and that's a spirit. It's part of the awfulness of their teachings. Now, John said the same thing in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3, that uh, those that deny that Jesus came in the flesh is a work of Antichrist. 
Now, what do the Gnostics deny? They deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Why do they insist that Jesus didn't, did not come in the flesh? Because flesh is evil. Jesus is God. Jesus, as God, would never uh, envelop himself in sinful flesh. Therefore, he only appeared to be a man. He was not a man. He only had the appearance of a man, which there, then according to our Bible, then he can't be the sacrifice because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And without being human, he has no blood to shed. So therefore, he has to be a man against Gnostic heresy. All right. Uh, verse 8 says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. So he's saying, this is like one of those examine yourselves uh, type, type of verses. Look to yourselves that you're not losing Reward. Now, can you lose reward? Yes. Can you lose salvation? No. So what is this idea of rewards? Well, you as a believer, you have a judgment day coming. You're going to sit in front of Jesus Christ in judgment one day. But it's not the judgment of, are you going to heaven or hell? You're going to heaven. Revelation chapter 20, the great white throne judgment, that's for the unbelievers judgment. And they're cast into the lake of fire. The believers that were saved from that lake of fire, they sit in what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. That's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So to give you an idea of this judgment, which is to determine rewards, to, to reward the work that you've done on earth, not works that save you, but works that God is pleased to reward in you. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, um, we'll start in verse... Oh, that's 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 9, we read this. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one of you take heed. This is just what uh, 2 John is saying. Take heed of uh, how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what's the foundation that Paul laid that nobody else can, can change? It's the foundation of Jesus Christ. So now, all of your life, all of your decisions, all of your uh, uh, ambitions and desires and everything is based on that foundation. You build your entire house of your life upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Nothing should be built on the shifting sand that's not of Jesus Christ. It's got to be on the rock of Jesus Christ. If that's your foundation, verse 12 says, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become clear for the capital D day, judgment day, will declare it because it'll be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So this is not the fire of punishment. This is the fire of of saying, let's take a look at the gold, the silver, and the precious stones of your work and see what fire does to it. What does fire do to gold and silver and precious stones? It only burns and consumes the impurities in those things. But the gold and the silver and the preciousness of the stones remains intact. So it becomes more valuable through the fire. It becomes more pure through the fire. Okay? So if, um, if anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. 
Jesus says those rewards go 30, 60, and 100-fold of what you actually did. Isn't that a great return on investment? Wouldn't anybody in the stock market wish they could offer such a thing as that? Your God does offer such a thing as that. Now, if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, and he himself will be saved as though through fire. Now, that's because I... I the other things he said you could build with is wood, hay, or straw in verse 12. So if you're not building with gold, silver, and precious stones, you build with wood, hay, or straw, those are works that only served you. Those are works that were for your immediate in interest. These are the prayers that James says you ask amiss because you ask for your own selfish desires, okay? That's building with wood, hay, and straw. But what's the wood, hay, and straw built upon? The foundation of Jesus Christ. So you're saved because of that foundation, but now when you're at your Bema Seat judgment and rewards are being determined, this says the fire that tests your works because you built with wood, hay, and straw burns up your works and there's nothing left and there's no reward there. And so what does Paul say? He says he will suffer loss. What does John say in 2 John? Be careful not to lose your reward. He says, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So it's almost like your toes were touching the fires of hell, but you got pulled out at the last second and you blow on your toes and they're fine and then you enjoy heaven in your rewardless state. Now, I was only supposed to take a half an hour on this letter because I need a half an hour for the next letter, but I need to say this now that we talked about rewards. The question I always get when the question of rewards comes up is, how can everybody fully enjoy heaven if I get up there with 30-fold reward and I see you with a 100-fold reward, I'm going to be like, what up with that, God? Okay? So how does jealousy not play in? How does covetousness not play into all this? Well, first of all, everybody's perfected in heaven. So in your glorified state, you're perfected. Are you going to have jealousy or covetousness towards other people's rewards in your perfection? Of course not. Those things are flaws. They're not flaws in us in heaven. Secondly, I think these rewards have to do with capacity. In other words, um, my cat, enjoy, he eats the same food every single day, day in and day out, multiple times a day. He doesn't get anything different. It's the same food every single day. Yet, he begs for it, he bothers us until he gets it, and he's super happy when he gets it. Why? Because his capacity for enjoying food is so small that he can receive fullness of joy with the same food every single day. My capacity for enjoying food is so much bigger than that that I cannot do the same food every day and still enjoy it and be excited about it. I need variety and I need things changed up for me because of my increased capacity. But when that capacity is met, then I get fullness of joy, but it comes from a 30, 60-fold or 100-fold difference that my cat enjoys. But he's not complaining because he's only capable of enjoying so much food. Uh, my capacity is greater and my capacity is filled. So that might be right and that might be wrong. So take that for however you want to take that. All right. Let's finish up this letter. Uh, I think we're in verse uh, 10 or 9. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. See the relationship to obedience and your relationship with God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Now, 
This says that if anybody's outside the doctrine of Christ, don't let him in your house. Now, that's different meaning for John than it would mean for us. Why? Where were their churches? They were mostly house churches. So that means you're allowing false doctrine into your church where you're trying to teach true doctrine. Your homes are probably serve a much different function. Your homes are probably mostly for you and your family and then in whatever guests you invite into there. And if you invite guests in with false doctrine, that false doctrine is probably not even going to be brought up. But if it is brought up and they're trying to change people's minds, then you're not to welcome them in your home anymore. Um, but if it's just, hey, you want to have a pizza and watch the game, you can do that. Okay. In fact, hopefully be evangelical about it. But where the teachings of God happen, like our church, people come in with false doctrine. They either need to listen to our doctrine and not mention their doctrine. But if they're going to mention their doctrine, they got to go. Okay. So we had a guy that was a friend of mine who converted to Catholicism. And he would literally sit in the barista area of the grill with all these Catholic books that spark people's curiosity and going, what are you reading? What are you reading? And he would start giving them Catholic doctrine. So finally, we said, if you keep doing that, you can't be here. You know, you can't go to a Protestant church and preach Catholic doctrine type of thing. And he tried to convince me that, you know, there's good reason for it and all this and all that. And uh, he was saying in front of one of the security guys that I was mentoring who was super hungry for the word and trying to learn the word like crazy. And so I challenged them to a debate. I said, why don't we debate this stuff and see how it goes? And, and uh, he agreed. And the security guy was our audience and he was gonna determine who won the debate. So we went to my classroom about a week later and we debated. And every point I made, I made from the Bible. Every point he made, he made from some other book than the Bible. And I kept saying to him, don't you want to use something as authoritative as the Bible? Don't you want to use something that has inspiration involved with it? Don't you want to use something that comes from God rather than man? And he tapped the answer around that, but never used the Bible. And I said to him, if your points are so strong, you should be able to point to the Bible for them. So since you can't point to the Bible, how about you not spread the stuff from man's books that disagree with the Bible around? And so... Uh, he did, especially because the guy that judged the debate was security. So if he won the debate, he would have been escorted off just like as if he lost the debate. So he really had no winning situation, which is a great debate to be in when you have no choice but to win. But um, I will say this for your guys' sakes. Uh, the Bible did win in that debate. All right. Now, uh, wrapping up, uh, he says this. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come and speak to you face to face that our joy may be full. Why doesn't he want to use paper and ink to keep on talking to him? Same reason I started the letter with. They're under great, great persecution. Everything he writes is a risk because it's a permanent record of who they are and what they're about. So he says, the children of your elect sister greet you, amen. Now you know exactly who they are, correct? These are the daughter churches, the plant churches, that John has visited are telling the main church in the metropolis that the other churches greet you, amen. All right, third John, let's just keep right on rolling. Third John, it says the elder, okay? So there's that coded language again. To the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Now we've got an issue. Somebody's been named, somebody's been tagged. Okay, a bit risky. So what's going on with naming uh, Gaius here? Well, you're gonna see other people get named in this, but what John is doing is he's giving examples 
of following good doctrine and following bad doctrine, having good character and having bad character. And so he does what's necessary within a church, and that is to call out those who are in sin, to call out those who, if they do not receive your rebuke privately, you're to bring others in. Isn't that what Matthew 18 teaches you? If they do not receive them, you're to bring it to the church. And this is something that's at the level of bringing to the church. And so as the church sees the church discipline happening, John seems to write this letter to show how far off the sinner is as he compares them to people that are walking correctly. Okay, so let's take a look at this. Verse 2. Verse 2 says, um, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, Gaius seems to be one of those that John delighted so much in the last letter to see that his children were walking in truth. Now we get to meet one of those children walking in truth. It's Gaius. Now, he says, I pray that you prosper in all things. Now, who do you think uses that verse a lot? These are our prosperity churches uh, uh, verses, right? God desires for you to prosper in all things, so you should have wealth and things like this. So let's talk about that for just a moment. Prospering in all things is indeed something that we can pray for. But if you have a greedy heart, God will likely not answer your prayers. Why? Because that's going to exaggerate your flaws. Greed is a flaw. Getting what you ask for that only serves yourself is only going to exasperate your greediness. And God cannot be expected to exasperate your flaws. He's there to replace your flaws with truth. Now, we can pray for others that they prosper and pray for ourselves that we prosper if we're talking about prospering according to the will of God. So I think the book of James spells this out as crystal clear as any of them. James chapter 4, if you want to join me there. All right, James chapter 4, we read this. It says... Where do wars and fights come from from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? So these are the things that when you pray for prospering, if you're praying for the wrong motives, it's saying you're praying for things in the wrong motive that will war against your own soul. So why would God give you things that end up warring against your own soul? They do not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members. Do they not come from that? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Do not ask what? You do not, ask, listen, he's saying you do not ask for your desires. Ask for your desires. But if your desires are for pleasure, your own personal pleasure, then he says this, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So if you're asking of God to prosper is coming from pride and not humility, you're asking amiss. 
and God reserves the right to certainly say no. This is where I see the direct correlation between God as a father and we as parents. We do not want to exaggerate our children's flaws, do we? That's called spoiling them. They get worse and worse and worse in character the more you say yes and yes and yes to things that have to do with their greed or their impatience, or you say yes just because they're throwing a fit or whatnot, okay? Now listen, I stand in front of you as somebody that does that. I am wrapped around the pinky finger of my granddaughter, and she can ask for whatever she wants, and she gets it. And my wife and my daughter are much better at saying the right thing, yes when it should be yes and no when it should be no, and she knows enough to say, Grandpa, when that happens, and then she's got her Cheetos and her Cheez-Its, and she's got whatever she's asking for. But I'm, not say, I'm saying that as a confession, not as a model for imitating. I'm saying I know what it's like, okay? All right, so it's not easy. All right, now, so that's the, the prospering we're talking about. It says, for I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. And here it is. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. And Gaius is uh, the model of that. Now, I think that's true of parents too. As I deal with parents whose children are now adults and they are thriving in their spirituality, you can just see that there's a check mark in their heart going, of all the things that they can go through, at least they're going through it as authentic Christians. And that brings no greater joy. I can deal with their ups and downs. I can deal with whatever they got to deal with. But as long as I know that they have their own personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it's not dependent upon me or their other parent or anything like that, they walk out the truth on their own. They stand on their own two spiritual feet. There is really no greater joy than that. Because if that was not intact and everything else was going fine for the kid, there would always be this gnawing at the heart that you can't get away from. What about God? What about God? What about God? But if they get that settled, then you really can deal with almost anything from that point forward. So there really is no greater joy than to see your children walking in the truth. And therefore, listen, I can't tell you how many testimonies I have heard of people from crack cocaine to whatever reason, they were, they were down and out in massive ways. And when they come and they finally get it spiritually and they get healed in their souls, time and time again, it's my mother never stopped praying for me. So wherever you're at with your children, understand that a great majority of testimonies of lost children who are now found mention the fact that their mothers were always praying I don't know why it's not the fathers, gentlemen. There probably should be more testimonies. But thank God for the mothers who never, ever quit. They just keep on praying. Uh, it's like Mary who says, you're going to have this son and it's great delight, but guess what? An arrow shall pierce your soul. This is going to cost you emotionally. But, um, but as soon as she knows that it's going to pierce her soul, what does she give us? The great Magnificat, the great song of celebration that God has looked upon her favorably to be the mother of the Messiah. He's, so he says to Gaius, I have no greater joy to hear my children walk in the truth. And, and what I, I wrote here is, coming from the last living apostle, this is a powerful accommodation, powerful thing to say, that, that you, you walking in truth brings me no greater joy. 
But there's other accommodations. There's better accommodations that we can get than what John gives to Gaius there. And I just want to point those out to you real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in verse 17 and 18 says this. 2 Corinthians 10, that's what I wrote, right? All right, verse 17. It says, but he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So if you're glorying over everything, listen, glory in the Lord, for not it is not he who commends himself who's approved, but whom the Lord commends. Okay, so when we're commended by the Lord, that's the greatest accom accommodation we can get, is that when the Lord um, is, is, is happy with us. So do not do your works to be seen by men, but to be seen by God. And then in Philippians chapter two, starting in verse 14, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. So all that Paul goes through and all that he knows that you as a believer might go through, he says this, keep in mind this, the day of Christ, that they'll be rejoicing in the day of Christ. Keep your mind set on the rejoicing that'll be done in the day of Christ. That's why Paul will say the glories that await us make the sufferings of this present world not worth comparing. So set your mind on the day of Christ where the word of that day for the believer is rejoicing. In all of the pain and all of the strife and all of the worry and all of the disappointment is far outweighed by your glory, the glory that you experience. So keep in mind the day of Christ Jesus. So for this present world, I want you to think of 2 Corinthians 10, 17, that accommodation. I want you to think of Philippians 2, 14 through 18 for that accommodation. And then for the there and then, the thereafter, I want you to think of the, how sweet the words will sound when it's no less than Jesus Christ looking at you saying, that was well done, my good and my faithful servant. How sweet are those words gonna be in your soul? I would say this, those words will be so sweet in your ears that the joy of those words in that moment will reverberate in your soul for all of eternity. That joy will never leave you when the voice of Christ looks at your completed life and all that you've said and done, and he says, well done. Do you know it can only be well done if you face adversity? It's just done if you don't face adversity, but it's well done if you walk through it and there's adversity there. All right. Back to 3 John, verse 5. Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church. If you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you will do well because they went forth for his namesake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may became, become fellow workers for the truth. Now, the heart of discipleship is helping others so relate themselves to Christ that their lives become about Jesus just as the discipler's life is about Jesus. This makes the kingdom of God more efficient. What I mean by that is this. When you disciple, you're creating, you're beginning more little Christs walking around the planet. And when Jesus would have ministered a certain way to somebody, now these people are ministering in that certain way to those somebodies. This is what makes sense to me when Jesus says, 
when they're admiring the works of Christ, he says, you will do greater works than these. Now, Jesus rose the dead, gave sight to the blind, the lame were walking, the deaf were hearing, the poor had the gospel preached to them. I don't think greater means you'll do superior works than those. What's superior than raising the dead and sight to the blind and all of this stuff? The word greater there has to mean greater in number. You'll do more. There'll be a greater number of these things being done by my body that I leave behind than the body that I take to heaven with me. You're my body. So as I preach, I'm gonna give some the ability to evangelize and preach and teach. As I healed, I'm gonna give some the gifts of healing. Okay, as, as, as some um, uh, love and minister and get those gifts, you know, Jesus was doing those things and we're gonna do those in greater numbers um, than he did on the earth here through his power and through uh, his will. So, so whatever you do, he says, you do for the brethren and you also do it for strangers. You also do it for strangers. Now, it says, they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. Listen, there's this idea of missionaries being talked about in here. And it says, you're being commended because you aided these people. You took them into your home that were doing missionary work. I, I always say, I don't always say this. I actually rarely say this. So I don't even know why I said that. But sometimes I say this. I say, one of three things should be happening in your life at all times. Be a missionary, be on the mission field doing the work of a missionary, okay? Or you should be supporting a missionary as far as uh, financial givings and all that. Or you should be housing a missionary uh, when they're in town. So they shouldn't be sleeping in hotels and spending money. They should be having the body of Christ take them in for free and feeding them for free and all these things for free. So either be that one Support that one by giving them financial gifts to send them off or when they're in town, make your house a free place to stay, a free place to eat and, and, and so forth. Always be doing one of those three things. Participate in the gospel message getting out to the world by these people who have the passion to actually sacrifice their own comfort and well-being to be out there delivering the word. So that's what this is saying here, that, that uh, they went forth for Jesus' name's sake and they took nothing. They took nothing, okay? They did it out of their own expense and so forth. Listen, this goes for your pastor, by the way, okay? The tithe is not you saying, I'm such a good person, look at me chipping in here. Your tithe is commanded of you, why? Because the Apostle Paul says, that pastor should have no financial worries that requires him to go work somewhere else. He needs to make his living from the gospel. He says, because the ones that will suffer if he's not making his living from the gospel, is you. Because his performance and his preparation and his learning and his ability to counsel and all these things that go into pastoring a flock are compromised by his need to go serve another master in some probably secular endeavor and take up great amounts of his hours during the week that he's not giving to the body. So how do we solve that problem? We say, Pastors should earn their living from the gospel, okay? They should earn their living from the gospel and the gospel only, and that comes from your tithes and offerings. They also go to the fact that he probably turns on lights when he preaches and somebody's got to pay the electric bill, and he probably, in South Florida especially, has got to put the air conditioning on, 
uh, every single day of the week and that's going to cost them money and you probably want some carpeting down on the floor and you probably want a fairly comfortable chair to sit in and you probably want, 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 want so that you show up on Sunday. Well, somebody's got to pay for that and it should not be the pastor. It should be the people who are benefiting. You're getting fed spiritual food. What are you willing to pay for spiritual food? God says you should be willing to pay 10% of your gross income. Okay, why? Because that's the first fruits, and it should be the first fruits. It should be before taxes. So not your net amounts, because that now you're putting the government in front of God. Put God first by giving from your gross amount, and then, and then you trust him enough to live your life off of 90%. And it's a faith walk. It's a trust walk. It is part of my testimony as in 1996, I was going flat out broke. I was living in an apartment. I was selling off stereo equipment and stuff just to pay the rent. I was in bad, bad, bad shape. And guess what message I heard? Tithe. So I made a deal with God. I said, be happy to. Give me a job and I'll tithe. And God said, tithe and I'll give you a job. Well, you're so difficult, God. So I started tithing the few nickels that I had. I started tithing them. And I promise you the floodgates of heaven opened for me in one summer. As I became a baseball coach for the first time, I was able to do baseball camps. Uh, at the same time I was doing baseball camps, I was offered a summer tutoring of uh, SAT prep for kids where they asked for private tutoring, which I was getting about $40 an hour from multiple kids. So it became like $120, $160 an hour. Uh, on top of baseball camps that I was making a couple thousand a week on the baseball camps because of the split that the school gave me. And I made so much money that summer, I couldn't believe it. And I paid off all of my debt in about six months. That should have took me years and years and years to go. And God said, tithe, tithe your nickels and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven. Now, I'm not saying that that's a dynamic that God does for everybody. I'm simply saying he did it for me, okay? Uh, he fulfilled that through the tithe and I've been tithing ever since. Now, um, let's wrap this up. So, um, Verse 90 says, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, here's the bad example now, but Diotrephes who loves to have preeminence among them. This is the same charge that Jesus gave the Pharisees. They love the, 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 the most respectful places in the marketplace. They love the best seat at the table. They love that people call them rabbi. They love all the attention, but they're not willing to lift a finger to carry their burdens. This is Diotrephes. He loves to have preeminence among them, but does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words. And not content with that, he himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to put, who wish to putting them out of the church. Listen, he silences those who want to tell the truth and kicks them out of the church. If I wanted to speak at 90% of the universities in the United States of America today, they would block the door with the student body. And if I got inside, they would yell and yell and holler so nobody could hear what I have to say. Listen, cultic behavior is silencing those who don't agree with you. That's the behavior of cults. That's the behavior of our universities today. It's the behavior of the United States of America that has a First Amendment free speech and, and, unless you're a believer. And then they deny you that. We're in big trouble in this country, ladies and gentlemen. Okay, Christians are, I'm gonna say these words with a, but I want you to hear me out. They're under persecution, not like John's church, but certainly not like the church in the United States 20, 30 years ago, okay? 
It is becoming more and more and more ungodly all the time, this country that we live in now, to the point where I cannot justify a Christian family sending their infant, their young kids to, to public schools anymore. Okay, can't even go to elementary school. If you're going to send your kids to elementary school, you better be ready to say, what did you learn? And be ready to tell them that those were lies. Here's the truth. Because they're teaching them to hate America and hate God. And if they aren't taught that that's wrong and lies, then they're going to be a part of the problem in the future. Okay. I am telling parents now, I will write your kid a letter of recommendation to college because they need it, but I'm going to say I, I don't in my heart recommend it at all anymore. Okay, I'd rather you be a waiter with your faith than an accountant without it. We're getting a design in this country to destroy faith. So we need the true gospel constantly preached, not the polite gospel, the gospel that can offend if you're outside of God's will, but we need uh, the truth. Now, 11, beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. He who does good is of God, but he who does evil is not seen God. Demetrius, in contrast to Diotrephes, Demetrius has a good testimony from all and from the truth itself. And we also bear witness, and you know that our testimony is true. So Demetrius has a good testimony. Um, now here's the cool thing. Demetrius is in a book that is the most read book in the world. Why? Because he did what was right, even if he was the only one doing what was right, and it's been reported. Listen, Ecclesiastes chapter 7 starts with this. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now we just go, precious ointment, so what? This was their means of exchange. This was monetary to them. It says a good name is better than money. Okay, a good name. Listen, I do a lot of memorial services, a lot of memorial services, and people get up and talk about their dead loved one, and they give eulogies of their dead loved one. And if I don't know the person, you better believe I'm listening to those eulogies because I got to speak after these eulogies. And what I'm listening for is what's good about their name. Their name might be dad to somebody, uncle to somebody, friend to somebody, boss to somebody, employee to somebody, husband to somebody. They have a name that means something to somebody, and what are those somebody's saying about that name? And if that name is good, I literally had one memorial where everything they were bragging about the person was bad and evil, but they were bragging about it. It was a terrible memorial to do. It can't even on public airwaves tell you all about it. It's a joke. But when the name is good, I'll bring them to Ecclesiastes 7.1 and say, a good name is better than money. So what are you doing for your name? Because I bet you you have all sorts of funds working for your money. I bet you have all sorts of a, a, like a will that takes care of your money. But let me ask you this. Are you taking care of your name? What do people say about you? What impression are you leaving with other people? Okay, Demetrius, whatever he did, I bet you right now he's going, I'm sure glad I did it because there's a Zoom going out in South Florida right now and they're talking about me and it's good testimony, thank goodness. And Diotrephes is burning somewhere going, yeah, not me, okay? So a good name is better than precious ointment. Demetrius has a good testimony. That doesn't sound extravagant, but it is. It's extremely extravagant. His good name uh, is everything. And your good name means everything. 
Again, John will conclude this letter by saying, I had many things to write to you, but I do not wish to write with pen and ink, but I hope to see you shortly and we shall speak face to face. Again, that's likely because anything he writes can and will be used against him in a persecuting society. Peace to you. Our friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. Now, we'll finish by saying this. Twice in both these letters, once each, he says, I have many things to write to you. Why? Because his best friend was Jesus Christ, for heaven's sake. When are you going to run out of stories when your best friend is Jesus Christ? And he'll finish his gospel, John's gospel, chapter 21, verse 25, saying that, I suppose if all the things Jesus said and did were written down one by one, not even the books in the entire world could handle and fit the things, all the things that Jesus said and done. Now that makes me say, I want to know more. I want to know more than you gave us. What are these other things that he did? What are these things, John, that you're saying you wanted to write more, but you're not? What are these things? Listen, here's, here's where our peace comes. In 2 Peter, another one of Jesus' close friends wrote this. We have been given everything we need for life and for godliness. We have no excuses to not be godly people, no matter what we weren't told in this Bible, we have all that we need for life and godliness. Jesus is enough, and the revelation we've gotten of Jesus is enough. And so we are without excuse for knowing God, for obeying God, for pursuing God, and for being lights and witnesses and testimony to other people who desperately need to know what you know. We have everything we need, amen? Let's pray. Father, it's in Jesus' name, Lord, that we lift up uh, everything that was said and heard about these two letters, and we ask you to anoint it. We ask you to uh, just to, to sanctify it, Lord, to, to sharpen it and to uh, discard what needs to be discarded and to enhance that which is good and healthy for our souls, Lord, that in all things our hearts would rejoice greatly in you, Lord God, that you would be our, uh, our first choice in every decision we make. So, Lord, with that, we present ourselves to you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we have a question here that reads, if we enjoy doing good works because it makes us feel good to help others and serve God, is that an impure motive? Also, does not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing mean we never tell anyone what we do? All right, so the first part of that question um, I would say it, it could be an impure motive. I mean, it, but it also, it's not necessarily an impure motive because God will put his pleasure in your heart when you please him, okay? Uh, Paul says that he works in our conscience in a way that either convicts us or um, approves of us. So uh, when we're doing the will of God, we'll feel his approval. That's a good feeling. And we're gonna enjoy that good feeling. But if your motive was to please him, regardless of the feeling, then the motive's pure. If it's, I know how to feel good, so I'm going to do it, um, then that's probably not a pure motive. So it just all comes down to, I think, what's the initial reason why you're doing what you're doing? If it's the glory of God, then enjoy the good feelings that come from it. Uh, God's pleased to bless you. And um, Philippians 2.13 says, He works in you to will to do for His good pleasure. So he's lining up his desires with yours. Psalm 37, four says, if you're delighting in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. So you have desires 
And if you're delighting in God, your desires are going to be holy, and then he's going to meet those desires that are holy. It's the same thing James said about you're asking wrongly because you're asking for your own personal pleasure rather than for the glory of God. But when you serve for the glory of God and God dwells in you, you're going to see that that brings you pleasure. And um, again, if it's somehow manipulative, like I know how to get the good feelings, so I'm going to do this, and, and it's really about my feelings and not God being pleased, then you put the cart in front of the horse, and I would say that's impure. But if you're initially doing it because you know God wants you to do it, then I think you're in good shape. And what was the second part of the question? Left hand knowing your right hand doing, does that mean that we don't tell other people what we've done? Yeah. Well, you got to remember that that's kind of the same question as the first one because he's speaking to the Pharisees when he says and he's accusing them of doing things for show, for the approval of man and things like that. And so he says the cure for that is that, yeah, other people don't know what you're doing. But obviously... If you're feeding the poor and you're asking your friends to come and help and feed the poor, then they know what you're doing and you know what you're doing and people know what you're doing. It all comes down to the root reason why you're doing the thing you're doing. And if that causes other people to know what you're up to because you're getting people involved, then that's not violating the left hand, not knowing what your right hand is doing. It's more this idea of pre-planning letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing in a bragging way, like, look at me, look at me, look at me. If there's no look at me in it, then you can do it as publicly as you want, bring as many people in you as you want, if it's because that enhances the work of God, then of course we want to do that. Um, we know there's no sadness in heaven. We don't know for sure if we remember our lost loved ones or not, but I think R.C. Sproul answered this in a very uh, cool way. He said, when you ask that question about like, can you enjoy heaven knowing you have loved ones that are lost and in hell, can you enjoy heaven? Well, first of all, God's love for those people is greater than our love for those people. And I don't think God's up there going, my whole eternity's ruined because of these people that aren't here. Um, I don't think anybody in heaven is having their joy ruined by people that aren't there. So R.C. Sproul suggested this. We ask that question as human beings about other human beings, and our empathies and sympathies are on human levels. But when you're glorified, you're not like a human being. You're like Christ. So you're in a whole different state, whole different understanding, and your sympathies and empathies go directly towards Christ and his greatest interests. And if he found it right that your loved one's not there, then you will probably find it right that your loved one's not there and not be upset and disappointed and all that, but actually be in full agreement and understanding with what happened the same way Jesus is. Now, I'm, I'm a human being saying that to other human beings, and we only know how to sympathize and empathize with other human beings. But Sproul is suggesting that in our non-humanness, in our glorified state, our understandings are far different and our sympathies and our understandings will be along the lines of Christ, not of other human beings. So we would probably actually somewhat, I don't know if we'd actually applaud the decision, but we would simply say, I wouldn't have it any other way because we see the rightness and the perfection of these decisions. So it's not an easy thing for me to say, and it's not an easy thing for you to hear, 
um, nor do I know if it's right or not, but I see the logic behind it. I see that I'm a human being and I can't imagine somebody that I cared about not being there and me being okay with it. But I also know that I'm not going to be a human being when I experience that. I'm going to be something far greater, more like Jesus, and I highly doubt Jesus is having his whole eternity ruined over these folks, and so therefore I don't think we will either. And it wasn't that he was not loving them. He loved them enough to die for them, and he was the one ultimately rejected by them. So what he went through, he still is joyous, and I think we will be too. It reads, in the book of Matthew, as well as First Kings, why does it say for us to be perfect as your father is perfect when nobody can be perfect? Yes. Um, that's the standard. The standard for you to get to heaven apart from Christ is perfection. So God doesn't withhold that information. He says, be perfect as your father is perfect. Now, he also gives us the law, and the purpose of the law is not for you to try to perform it, believe it or not. The purpose of him giving the law is to show that you can't possibly perform the law. The only way for him to demonstrate your need for a savior, your need for Christ, is to show you that you're not loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You're, 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 you're not uh, free from completely using his name without using it in a vain way. Uh, you didn't honor your parents perfectly. Uh, you do covet. Uh, you do uh, lust and commit adultery through your lust. And you do get angry at your brother, which Jesus said makes you guilty of his murder. You do violate command after command after command after command. So he sets the standard and he says, here's the expectation is that you're perfect. Now look at the law. And you're going to go, Paul said, I didn't know I was a coveter until I read the law. I said, do not covet. Then I realized I was a sinner at that time. He said, the law instructed me of my inability to perform the law. So the main purpose of the law is to point you to your helplessness and to your need for Christ. That's why the law is given. So we wouldn't know that without the standard being perfection. If we, without the standard given by God of perfection, we would think out of me and my 10 friends, I'm the first or second most moral one of them all. So I'm confident I'm going to heaven. No. God says you're to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And where, you're, where I want to bring you to heaven, everybody's perfect. So you have to be perfect to come here. So how do we obtain that perfection? The, all the New Testament is crystal clear that Jesus had to live the 33 years on earth in perfection. He had to be perfect. And once he achieves that perfection, when he dies, he can impute that perfection to your account. So we have what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that comes from outside of us. There's no righteousness we can perform within us. We all fall short of the glory of God. So therefore, Christ imputes his 33 perfect years to our account, and we impute our sinful record to his account. That's why we're witnessing him dying on that cross. It's because that's where sinners go. Sinners die. They're punished for their sin. Jesus does that for us. And at the same time, see, you being void of sin is not enough. It's not enough for you to be sin-free. You also have to have perfect righteousness, which means even though you didn't commit a sin, you probably omitted good things that you were supposed to do. You weren't perfectly righteous, okay? So all of that's got to be paid for. His death pays for the sin. His righteousness 
He's able to impute to our account so that we're counted as righteous at our judgment and without sin, and we need both. We're always told Jesus died for us. We need to be told more that Jesus lived for us as well. He lived that perfect life that we couldn't live because the standard is indeed perfection, and we can't live up to it, so he did it for us. And um, um, we receive that through faith, the righteousness of Christ, and the imputation of our sin to him comes through faith as well. So we're saved by grace through faith alone. So um, that's why we're told to be perfect, so we know what the standard is. Uh, we have a question here that is going back to what you were saying about tithing. Uh, is it tithing supposed to be done on everything, not just income, meaning things like the government stimulus packages and gifts that you receive? Uh, yeah, it should be done on any anything, and yes, on everything you receive. I think the Pharisees, Jesus never condemned the Pharisees for their tithing. He says, you, you tithe even your mint, your cumin, and your dill. They're in their spice racks, taking 10% of their spices and giving it to the church. And he doesn't say they're wrong for doing it. He just says, you do it to be seen by men. It's not from your heart. It's for your show type of thing. He says, you're neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Uh, which, which are mercy and justice and, and things like that. So they weren't merciful, they weren't just, but they're great tithers. And he says you need to do both. He didn't say to stop the tithing, he just said, don't think you're, 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 you're good just because you're a tither, you also need the weightier matters of the law. So, but I would also say this, like if you've never tithed and you're struggling to pay your bills and then you hear me talking like I'm talking now, you're probably getting stressed out by the whole thing, like how would I ever get by? Number one, I would say that's a trust issue with God. You, there's, you can't avoid the fact that there's a lack of trust in God when you don't tithe. But I'd also say this. I believe the Bible's telling us that God will, could work gradually through you to get to 10% because Paul will say the Lord loves a cheerful giver. So if he loves a cheerful giver, I don't know how he feels about uncheerful givers. So if you can't be a cheerful giver right away, then do what you can, and I think God will increase your capacity for your love of giving until you become a tither. Tithe means 10th. So if you're just giving a few bucks here and there and it's not 10% of your income, then you're not a tither. A tither is a tenther. Somebody gives a tenth of their, their income. Okay, so uh, believe it or not, there's people that are literally 90% tithers. They give 90% of their income to the work of God and so forth. So when you're giving your 10%, keep them in mind and you'll feel like great about giving 10%. So, um, yeah, so I would say ask the Lord uh, to make it a joyful experience of worship when you give. If you're grumbling and complaining about it, I don't know this for sure, but I could imagine God saying, keep your stupid chump change. I'll get it done without it, but I'm not looking for you to grumble your way through this thing. I'm looking for you to worship through it and, and to be a joyful giver through it. Um, so I would say whatever you can do joyfully, because remember the woman with that gave a half a denarii or half a copper coin, Jesus singled her out and praised her. And that was because, quite frankly, it was I think he said it was uh, like half of her income. It was like all she had she was giving from. So she probably was way over 10%. Children of God, only does that only belong to those that believe that Jesus is God, that He died and rose, or does that include all humans? Well, John says um, 
Oh, the love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. He's talking to people in the church. He says you become a child through adoption. You enter into the family of God through adoption. And there's also this picture of marriage. You enter in through marriage where God the Father finds a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. And if you're saved, that means God chose you to be the bride of his son, Jesus Christ. So, um, so how do you become a child of the Father? You marry his son. Now you're a child of the Father. So uh, no, I, w I don't think all people are the children of God. I think um, uh, you become a child through faith. Um, so um, it, it's a, yeah, it's, a, it's an honor and a humbling privilege to be called a child of God. And that's why John is overwhelmed by it when he says the love that's required from God that to bestow upon us to be called his children is quite a, a love. And remember, I think the analogy from parent to child works all the time. So um, sometimes your, 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 your teenager brings over friends and one of those friends you become especially endeared to and you call yourself their second mom. I'm your second dad, your second mom, all that stuff. It's almost like they're saying you're my child because there's a special love there. There's other kids you're like, please don't ever bring them over again and you would never call them your child. And I think that analogy works uh, with, with, with God that... Uh, there's a special love when you marry his son. Uh, it's just like when our daughter got married, at first, first time we met him, he was just some dude, Eric. Now he's our son, because he married into the family and he's considered one of our children now because of that. So he married into it, but he wasn't always it type of thing. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think you have to be saved to be called the child of God. Next question is, is hiding the Mosaic law open? You know, that's a challenging question because um, it, it's been presented that there um, is no New Testament command to tithe. But I think that there is, but I think it's in the form of Jesus, uh, the very verse that I gave you where he's, when he's chewing out the Pharisees in Matthew 23, he says, you tithe. Uh, your mint, your cumin, and your dill, yet you neglect the weightier matters of the law. You should have done the latter without neglecting the former. Okay? Or you should have done the former without neglecting the latter. He says both should be done as he talks about tithing. So I think that is Jesus not abolishing the tithe. Now some would say it's because he hasn't died and risen again yet, therefore the Mosaic law is not intact there. But the fact that Paul says the Lord loves a joyful giver, he's clearly saying that after the death and resurrection of Christ, and he's talking about giving. Although I don't think he speaks in terms of a tithe at 10%, he speaks, and that might be the New Testament law, is tithe, you give at the level of your joy type of thing. And as your intimacy with God increases and your, your joy of laboring for the Lord increases, you'll find your, your, your giving increases type of thing. So um, I can't say that I think the scriptures are crystal clear in the New Testament about it. Um, but um, that's why I think uh, you're certainly safe if you're giving 10%. And I think that's an act of worship. But I also think that if you would not be joyful in doing it, you should work your, you should do what, what is joyful for you. And I would also say, I don't think it should be nothing because if everybody went by that, there'd be no church. Okay, 
So um, you certainly participate in the electricity of the church, the air conditioning of the church, the parking lot of the church. Uh, you, you are welcome to receive the services of the hired staff of the church. And with all of those expenses going out, um, there's no government funds coming in. There's no sales of anything really happening uh, that are designed to support the ministry. So therefore, it's relying upon um, the tithe. So uh, if you use those things and you're fed the word of God, I think it certainly would make sense that you would uh, participate in the financial obligations that allow it all to happen. Um, well, I don't, I, I, I don't know where it says to tithe sacrificially, so I'm not sure what the context is there. Um, uh, I, what I personally think is that it is an act of worship that you can increase in your capacity to do, uh, by doing it. And I think, I think a lot of things play into a tithe, uh, and I don't think income is one of them. And I don't think... Um, uh, you know, the current financial situation you're in is one of them. I would honestly say this much, and I've pretty much already said it, which is that if I had an economic advisor looking out for my best financial interests, I could guarantee you the last season of my life he would ever said I should have tithed was the season that I began tithing in. It made zero economic sense, but I believe it was the key that opened the door of blessing to make me debt-free. I've been debt-free for the last 25 years of my life. So, um, and I was in no position to ever experiencing being debt-free when I got out of college. So um, I, I celebrate God and I say that as testimony to God that I believe that when I couldn't make earthly sense of tithing at that time, but obeyed, that he showed me, you can trust me in this, and you can trust me in all things. And I think my trust for him was solidified very early in my walk because of the tithe. So um, I forgot the question, quite frankly. Um, did I miss it? Oh, so sacrificial, listen. Yeah, so it was hugely sacrificial for me at the time. And I can't say it's sacrificial now, quite frankly, because it's all electronic and I never even see it happen. I get this thing sent to me saying, thanks for your tithe. And I was like, I did that? Great, super. Um, and it's not even a part of our budget. It's just we never see the tithe. And so we don't plan on having the tithe. And we just live our lives on, you know, off of the 90% type of thing. So, um, and I don't know that that's good. You know, I, I think maybe we should be writing a check and seeing the bank account diminish from the check. Uh, it's so invisible to me because honestly, my wife keeps an eye on all the banking stuff for me. I don't look at it very often at all, if ever. And so, I, in fact, I'm getting convicted as I keep on talking to you right now. I, I think I need to feel it and see it. I think I need to see these numbers decline when we tithe, because that'll help my trust in God. Thanks for that question. Now I gotta change everything. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, but li listen, um, 
This isn't a give till it hurts talk. This is a give until it's joyful talk. And I think that's what God will do is, is he'll uh, bring joy and worship to the act of giving. Because listen, you're here because you value the gospel. And the gospels, it costs money to get out for whatever reason it does, it does. And so uh, it, it's, God still requires his ministers to eat, to have shelter and those things. And as long as your pastor is not extravagant with that, then I think you should be giving. If he's extravagant with that, quite frankly, I think he needs an email to say, hey, can I buy you lunch? Because I know you're a pastor living off the tide. That looks tough. And then you say, so what's with the three boats and the huge house and all that stuff, if I'm going to keep on tithing? And pay for your own lunch, by the way. Um, but uh, um, I think you should question, you know, when it looks extravagant, quite frankly, in the pastor's life. Um, but I don't think you should talk behind his back about it. All right, so there's a lot of rabbit trails that are building up in my mind, so I'll leave it at that right now. So, thank you for uh, you know making this a joy on Wednesday nights, and um, and uh, I just my soul needs to see it. My soul needs to see faithful believers showing up to learn the word, and so it blesses me uh, very much to see you guys. So thank you for that. Bye, everybody.